scientific research and discovery in respect, as we should, we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific technological elite. The climate convention on the importance of economic instruments and free markets were included in this mammoth uh, Agenda 21 document and the Rio Declaration. Now, let me be clear on one fundamental point. Uh, the United States fully intends to be the world's preeminent leader in protecting the global environment. Coming up, Technocracy News. And greetings from Technocracy News and Trends. Patrick Wood here for one more episode. Today is April 6th. The year is 2020. We're in the middle of the great panic of 2020 over the coronavirus, also known as COVID-19. It's interesting to me that for 20 years at least, people have hated the media for misrepresenting just about everything they get their hands on. That is, the truthfulness that has come out of mainstream media has been very suspect for many, many years. And for some reason, people have completely flip-flopped and they trust them implicitly to report on the coronavirus and what's going on around the world. And even in the midst of this trust, the mainstream media has willingly accepted Chinese propaganda and reported Chinese propaganda. Everybody knows it. And yet the trust continues. It's very strange. Is there a relationship between fear and trust? Does the trustometer somehow break in pieces when fear rises in a person's consciousness? I don't know. But it is very strange to me that for all the years that people have cursed the media for shoddy journalism, for misrepresenting and misreporting facts, actually just fabricating facts, now they've thrown all caution to the wind. And anything the mainstream media says today is taken as gospel truth. Well, you know from last week's episode that I had written an article called The Common Roots of Climate Change and COVID-19 Hysteria. And I traced that back to Imperial College in London. And in particular, a Dr. Neil Ferguson who works there as a professor. Well, a new article by the World Economic Forum, that's the WEF, has confirmed that my take on this was right. And now there is indeed a link between the pandemic and the climate change agenda that's been with us, of course, for several decades now. I wrote at the top of this article, last week, Technocracy News wrote the common roots of climate change and COVID-19 hysteria, and its conclusions are proven accurate as the World Economic Forum confirms that it will help build momentum for strong climate action. The entire world is taken in by this chicanery, but the strategy is crystal clear. Destruction of the existing economic system will pave the way for sustainable development, a.k.a. technocracy. While saving human lives is always a noble end, the destruction of the global economy in doing so will result in orders of magnitude more deaths and untold human suffering. Even a fifth grader, by the way, could figure this out. But the World Economic Forum has pretty much let the kid out of the bag. The Great Panic of 2020 is leading straight into climate change agenda. 
and climate change cooperation around the world. They're hoping against hope that this will be the final impetus to drive climate change home, which in turn will drive sustainable development into reality. I've documented extensively in my books on technocracy that sustainable development is equivalent to historic technocracy. They're both resource-based economic systems. They both major on energy, consumption, and production and distribution. They're both about micromanaging the population, social engineering, taking control of all production and consumption. That is, telling businesses what they're allowed to make and telling you what you're allowed to consume. This agenda for the 21st century originally started out as Agenda 21. It came right out of the think tank of the Trilateral Commission that was founded in 1973 by David Rockefeller and Zbigniew Brzezinski. I wish people would wake up to this, but people hate history, and history tells a story. But if people don't read that story, they won't know what happened. Sustainable development is upon us thanks to the very clear machinations of members of the Trilateral Commission. And unfortunately for us, they changed the name in the middle of the stream. What was originally called technocracy is now called sustainable development. That's a very clever marketing trick. Of course, Agenda 21 is the same way. That was a document that really started sustainable development at the United Nations. But the United Nations is a global organization, whereas the Trilateral Commission truly was not. It was limited to three primary geographic regions originally, and that was Japan, Europe, and North America. Today, they've expanded their reach, and there's members from other nations of the world, other continents of the world. But the United Nations truly is the only global organization that they could trust to take this whole business of sustainable development to the entire planet. And so we see all of their agencies acting in conjunction with each other, no matter where they are, no matter what the circumstances, to push sustainable development upon the world. This is technocracy. This is the clear and present danger to our world. People need to wake up to this. That's all I can say. So much for the World Economic Forum, but you can check out that article yourself. Another article that came out on April 3 is titled, Imperial College Clearly Linked to U.S. Pandemic Response. This is another confirmation my article was right from last week. I wrote at the top of this one, my recent article, The Common Roots of Climate Change and COVID-19 Hysteria, is again proven correct that the U.S. policy has been unduly influenced by Imperial College and its lead statistician, Neil Ferguson, Ph.D., considering that Imperial College is a leading social activist with a well-known agenda for climate change hysteria and sustainable development, it has no business whatever in American politics. Imperial's true historical agenda follows the United Nations in perfect harmony. Destroy capitalism and free enterprise in order to usher in the UN's sustainable development, a.k.a. technocracy. In other words, this entire debacle, originally spooked by Imperial, the World Health Organization, and the United Nations, is not really about COVID-19 at all. Oh, world... You'd better wake up to send these carpetbaggers packing lest you fall into George Orwell's vision of the future. And this is his quote, not mine. Imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. The article itself states, leading disease forecasters whose research the White House used to conclude that 100,000 to 
240,000 people will die nationwide from the coronavirus, were mystified when they saw the administration's projection this week. The experts said they don't challenge the numbers' validity, but said they don't know how the White House arrived at them. White House officials have refused to explain how they generated the figure, a death toll bigger than the United States suffered in the Vietnam War or the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks. They have not provided the underlying data, so others can assess its reliability and have not provided long-term strategies to lower the death count. Some of President Trump's top advisors have expressed doubts about the estimate, according to three White House officials who spoke on the condition of anonymity because they were not authorized to speak publicly. There have been fierce debates inside the White House about its accuracy. At a task force meeting last week, according to two officials with direct knowledge of it, Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, told others that there are too many variables at play in the pandemic to make the models reliable. Quote, I've looked at all the models. I've spent a lot of time in the models. They don't tell you anything. You can't really rely upon models. Robert Redfield, director of Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the vice president's office, have similarly voiced doubts about the projection's accuracy, the three officials said. Jeffrey Shaman, a Columbia University epidemiologist whose models were cited by the White House, said his own work on the pandemic doesn't go far enough into the future to make predictions akin to the White House fatality forecast. We don't have a sense of what's going on in the here and now, and we don't know what people will do in the future, he said. We don't know if the virus is seasonal. The estimate appeared to be a rushed affair, said Mark Lipsich, an epidemiologist and director of Harvard University's Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics. Quote, they contacted us, I think, on Tuesday a week ago and asked for answers and feedback by Thursday, basically 24 hours, he said. My initial response is we can't do it that fast. But we ended up providing them some numbers responding to very specific scenarios. Other experts noted that the White House didn't even explain the time period the death estimate supposedly captures, just the coming few months, or the year plus it will take to deploy a vaccine. Almost the entirety of what the public knows about the death projection was presented on a single slide at a briefing Tuesday from the White House Coronavirus Task Force. A White House representative said the task force has not publicly released the models from which it drew out of respect for the confidentiality of the modelers, many of whom approach the White House unsolicited and simply want to continue their work without publicity. A representative for Fauci did not respond to a request for comment. A spokesman for Vice President Mike Pence declined to comment. On a Thursday call with conservative leaders, Pence said that it was difficult to view the models, but that the president thought it was important to share with the American people. Among epidemiologists, the estimate raised more questions than it answered, not just about methodology and accuracy, but perhaps more importantly, about purpose. The primary goal of such models amid an outbreak is to allow authorities to game out scenarios, foresee challenges, and create a coherent long-term strategy, something some experts worry doesn't exist within the White House. I wish there were more of a concerted national plan I wish it had started a month and a half ago, maybe two months ago, Shaman said. Natalie Dean, a biostatistician who was not involved in the White House effort but is working on coronavirus vaccine evaluation, 
with the World Health Organization, pointed out that, quote, the whole reason you create models is to help you make decisions, but you have to actually act on those projections and answers, otherwise the models are useless. At Tuesday's briefing, Trump announced the government's projected death count, saying it was based on data, quote, that has been, I think, brilliantly put together. The coordinator of Trump's coronavirus task force, Deborah Burks, then projected a slide with a high arcing mountain that shows worst case scenario, 1.5 million to 2.2 million deaths if Americans and the government did absolutely nothing to stop the virus, and a smaller but still imposing hill with 100,000 to 240,000 deaths if measures such as social distancing are taken. Burke said the projection is based on five or six modelers, including from Imperial College in Britain and Harvard, Columbia, and Northeastern universities. Quote, it was their models that created the ability to see what these mitigations could do, how steeply they could depress the curve, Burke said, referring to the trend line on the graph depicting infection counts. But two models appeared to have been particularly influential, the one by Imperial College and the one from the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at University of Washington. Two paragraphs down, it says, Meanwhile, the White House appeared to rely on Imperial College for its worst-case scenario. That study estimated as many as 2.2 million deaths in the United States if no action was taken, 1.1 million deaths if moderate mitigation strategies were adopted, and an unspecified number if drastic measures were taken. Well, it's clear to see that Imperial College is right smack dab in the middle of the United States' response to the coronavirus. This article, by the way, was produced by MSN, that is Microsoft News, and is hardly a friendly source, if you will, to the truth, but they have let the cat out of the bag completely, and the White House has said openly, yep, good old Imperial College, they provided the worst-case estimates that everybody jumped on, including us, and this is indeed what spooked America into the response that we have today for the coronavirus. The author of the study originally, Neil Ferguson, has retracted his initial death rate of 1.2 million, and he's lowered it down somewhere below 50,000. In Great Britain, where he projected there would be 500,000 deaths, he's retracted that initially to 25,000, and now, as I understand, he's retracted it down to 7,500. That means that a giant mountain was made out of a molehill, and now that the retractions have been made, of course, nobody within the mainstream media reports that. They still rely on the original projections and say, oh my gosh, we're all going to die. Well, aside from the people who are dying, which is, of course, a tragedy all in itself, we feel poorly for the families, for sure, that suffer the loss of a loved one, and many are. But nevertheless, we must look at the source, and we must look at the intent of those who fanned the fires of panic from day one on this coronavirus. And basically, it makes all of the numbers that have come out of mainstream media completely suspect. And people, you need to look through what the mainstream media is reporting to get to the truth of the matter. I'm not sure what that is, and I don't know that it really matters at this point, honestly, because the people that are going to die will die. But in the meantime, those who are orchestrating this crisis for their own particular end, 
need to be held accountable for it. We need to see that. The Trump administration has completely succumbed to this rhetoric, whether it comes from President Trump himself or whether he simply is being fed bad data by Dr. Burks or Dr. Fauci, we don't know. The third article today I want to bring your attention to is a very important article. It was written by our European correspondent, Dr. Jacob Nordengard. The title is Global Digital ID Coming on Heels of Coronavirus Panic of 2020. And this indeed is the case. The evidence is irrefutable at this point. I wrote at the top of this article, Requirement number six of the original 1934 Technocracy Study Corps stated this, and this is a direct quote, provide specific registration of the consumption of each individual, plus a record of description of the individual. And thanks to the great panic of 2020, this is finally being railroaded through into reality. This article by Technocracy News European contributor Jacob Nordengard, Ph.D., is a must-read to understand the globalist intent to implement full-blown sustainable development, a.k.a. technocracy. This is the clear and present danger to the world economic system. Total control over all physical resources, including human beings. And I might say especially human beings, because those are the one physical resource that tend to move about and tend to reproduce themselves. The lead paragraph in this article states, A digital identity for every citizen on the globe has been identified by the World Bank and the World Economic Forum as an important part in the realization of the Sustainable Development Goals. The right to a legal identity is part of Global Goal 16. It states, Peace, Justice, Strong Institutions. An effort to achieve this is the ID2020 Alliance, a public-private partnership between United Nations agencies, World Economic Forum, foundations, and big tech corporations. Their grand goal, however, raises some concerns about loss of privacy, mass surveillance, and population control. It comes with a price that might have severe implications for the freedom of man. ID2020 was founded in New York 2014 by John Edge, an expert on how public-private partnerships can solve the sustainability goals with the help from blockchain and artificial intelligence technologies. The organization that was supported by law firm K. Scholler, technology conglomerate Red Rose Corporation, and the merchant bank Broadhaven, held their first meeting in September 2015. Their stated mission was to give a digital identity to everyone through leveraging startup models and, in the end, create a system that would span the globe, including the 1 billion people that currently have no proper identification. Their first meeting, coinciding with the adoption of the United Nations 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development, was connected to Global Goal 16 with its sub-target 9 to, quote, by 2030, provide legal identity for all, including birth registration. ID2020 got a more solid ground at the United Nations Annual Summit in May 20, 2016, gathering industry leaders, NGOs, governments, emerging technology pioneers, and cross-industry experts to, quote, foster a global conversation and build a working coalition to identify and build 
the enabling conditions for the creation of a legal digital identity for all individuals at risk. Speakers came from the World Bank Group, the European Association for E-Identity and Security, Commonwealth Secretariat, Center for Information Assurance and Cybersecurity, MIT, PSG Solutions, Verizon. Several of them were also contributors to the World Economic Forum that has since been a significant player in the development of a digital ID. This is a long article. You have to read this article to get the big picture. It's extremely important. The global elite have been after this particular goal for a long time. There has been natural resistance from the peoples of the world under normal conditions that we've had for perhaps the past 10 to 15 years. Today, however, with the great panic of 2020, all of those walls are falling down to these people. And all of a sudden, they find a wide open door to rush through to implement their plans to achieve a global, universal ID for every person on planet Earth. This is coming from all quarters now within the global elite, a full court press, if you will. One thing that this global elite is looking for now is information on who has been vaccinated and who has not been vaccinated, who is immune to the coronavirus and who is not immune to the coronavirus. And so part of the justification for a universal global ID is to identify everybody who has not been vaccinated. And I might add, since this is all electronic in nature, encrypted by blockchain, every person who gets the vaccine in the end will simply be included into the blockchain. Yep, they got a vaccine. They get a free pass to wherever they want to go, whatever they want to do. For those who don't get the vaccine and who have never had coronavirus, look out because you will be a suspect person from day one, no matter where you go, no matter where you travel. Some people are also suggesting that China's social credit scoring system will come in handy here as well. These are frightening thoughts. But I have to say only the citizens of the world can push back against this. And if they don't, it'll just simply be too late. The players that are involved in this certainly are very powerful and very important people. But they fear the people of the world who have other ideas about their liberty and their rights. And as long as they can stay hidden behind the scenes, they'll have clear sailing from here on. If the spotlight is shown on them like it needs to be, and they're revealed for what they're doing, they will indeed be exposed to the people of the world. My feeling is a lot of people simply won't put up with it. They'll say, no, you're not going to do this to us. We wouldn't accept this on a local basis. We won't accept it on a global basis either. I would lastly point your attention to a graphic image that's embedded in this article. That is the one by Jacob Nordengarden. It's called Digital Identity. And this is an important graphic to understand the big picture. Around the periphery of this graphic are all of the areas that are viewed as essential or part and parcel of digital identity. You have healthcare, you have financial services, you have food and sustainability, you have travel and mobility, humanitarian response to access services to demonstrate qualifications to work in a foreign country, e-commerce, of course, buying things online, social platforms, e-government for citizens to access and use services, file taxes, vote, collect benefits, etc., telecommunications, and smart cities, that is to monitor devices and sensors transmitting data, such as energy usage, air quality, and traffic congestion. 
this is a graphic that was created by industry, not by me and not by Jacob. This is how they are viewing the importance of digital identity. So everywhere you go in society, ultimately, everything you do in all these various areas, whether it be healthcare, smart city, accessing government services through e-government, social platforms, humanitarian response, travel mobility, every one of these areas will be attached to your digital identity. Every transaction that you have that touches one of these areas will be entered into the blockchain as a permanent part of your record. And it will be available online forever, essentially. Well, in any case, I encourage you to read this article. I believe it's very important. Jacob's done a great job of researching this. He is clearly one of the top experts on the machinations of the Rockefeller Foundation and the Rockefeller family over the years. He's written a great book on it. And he's pretty much laid the plans bare of the World Economic Forum and groups like that that are intent on enslaving all of mankind, starting with a digital universal identity system. I'm Patrick Wood for Technocracy News and Trends. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.